from Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. So I had this landlady in Baltimore, and she was wonderful. I was, as many of you know, a broke comic, and I lived in the same neighborhood that was used to film The Wire, the HBO series about the drug trade in Baltimore in the 80s and 90s. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I lived in literally the neighborhood where they filmed The Wire. I would wake up in the morning and I would often go out to my car if it was still there because I had a car stolen three times in the span of 16 months. And I would walk out and uh, on more than one occasions when I wasn't paying attention, I would step on crack vials. I found spent shell casings all the time in my neighborhood. The weekend that I moved in, I moved from a really nice neighborhood in Baltimore into this one. <laughs> and my mom had uh, come out from Texas to visit and to help me move. And she stayed with me in my new apartment that night. And um, the very first night, you just heard the the pop, 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 pop of small arms fire. And my mom said, what was that? And I said, oh, mom, it's just fireworks. And she said, it's October. <laughs> so... Um, it was a bad neighborhood, but it was a great apartment. I lived in an old brownstone in a part of town called Druid Hill, which had been for much of the Baltimore Renaissance, where wealthy families had lived all the way up through um, up through the 1920s and 30s. And I lived in what was essentially the maid and butler's part of the home. It was wonderful. And my landlady was this very nice um, white lady from Pennsylvania who, amongst a number of other people, had bought these very, very old homes in this horrible neighborhood under the agreement with the county and city of Baltimore that if they moved in and they made these places nicer, that they could live there without paying taxes on the property. So, you know, win-win for everybody, but you had to advance them in value. And she did. She really did. She worked very hard. And this place was a paradise. Now, the four buildings to the left of me and the three buildings to the right of me were all set up this way and a couple across the street. But for the most part on that block, it was not the case. It was still it was still in pretty poor shape. But my landlady had a, uh, a, a gentleman, a gentleman friend named Walter, who was wonderful and walter and her were had dated for quite some time they um <laughs> they worked on the on the property together and he he knew how to do everything and it didn't matter if it was working on the ancient electrical system um you know fixing or, or updating to drywall the the old beat up like horsehair plaster for those of you who know what that is or working on the old floors to bring their luster back up because they were they were absolutely beautiful. But Walter did everything, absolutely everything in the house. And she worked she worked with him on it. But, you know, to say she worked with him on it is a bit of a, um, you know, that, that's that's far from the truth. Right. It was more like she, <laughs> he did 90 uh, percent of the work. She did like 10 anyway. They, they were from very different worlds and she was very liberal and he was very conservative and they got into a pretty ugly political argument one day and um, they broke up and they stopped seeing each other. 
and it didn't take long before the half finished projects all around the house and the half completed bits and pieces of the apartment were simply ignored. And she did what she could to fix it. I helped where I could. But for those of you who know me, I'm, I'm not I'm not the handiest guy. I'm what my friend Hector likes to call a job creator. You know, I'll, I'll get my checkbook out to get something fixed. But over time, um, over the course of the next year, they just sat there undone. And what I began to realize was my landlady's reliance on labor to get things fixed in her home was genuinely associated with her ability to maintain a relationship with someone. And I found out that the, you know, the argument was entirely political. And that argument that was entirely political was based around the fact that she lived in this neighborhood, surrounded and amongst people of a different color than her. And um, Walter had some views that were contrary to hers about race in America. And um, they had walked around them and tiptoed around them, but they had tiptoed around them enough. And she dismissed him in that relationship. What does that have to do with the topic today? It has everything to do with the topic today. These were two people who found ways to get along, even though there was a, a massive, massive, insurmountable political disagreement amongst them. They found a way to get along even though there was an issue between the two of them that was fundamentally different to the point where over time it would erode their ability to cooperate. They were both getting things out of this relationship that were positive, but much of what they had was based on a surface agreement not to go deeper. It was based on a surface agreement not to go any farther past the relationship of what was mutual, you know, mutually beneficial. And that's very, very much what the relationship between the United States and China is like. It's like the relationship between my landlady and Walter. Beyond what is beneficial for the two of them, there's a lot of unsavory things that both parties to this cannot swallow about the other, but that the other thinks is perfectly fine. And I, I, I work very hard not to cast political judgments on any of the media that I work in. And I'll continue to do the same here. But this is a hard one. I'm an American and I do believe in capitalism. And I do believe in the way of life that I've been raised in. And unlike the vast majority of Americans, I've spent a significant portion of my life outside the boundaries of this country. And I've seen everything from the beauty of some of the most incredible shining cities in the world to the just abject poverty that can be found in some of the lowest. And I'm proud to call this place my home. Now, I have friends of mine who are on the opposite side of this discussion, who are Chinese, who can give you truly eloquent and beautiful arguments that are based in everything from the very fast movement from poverty to incredible wealth that their family has seen over the course of just a few decades in China to the ability to maintain hope in China to all of its citizens to being able to bring up people into uh, that higher financial tier, keeping them safe, keeping them healthy. And again, you can argue on both sides of this all you want. I think it has a lot to do with who you want to win. But in the end, we 
tolerate one another because we need so much from one another. We need inexpensive goods and a massive consumer base to sell higher end American products, technology, ideas, and concepts to. The Chinese need an America that is deeply ingrained in consumption, that is not focused on the production of its consumer goods in order to continue to raise people out of poverty, to keep people employed, and to raise money for the many infrastructure projects that they're engaged in, building militaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a symbiotic relationship amongst two individuals that really don't have a lot of positive things in common. And now we're finding ourselves at this impasse where after years of dancing around the disagreement in the earlier part of this decade, there was some rumblings, but certainly in the second half of this decade, it, it would, you know, it would appear we're going to have to make some decisions. So the argument is just starting now. You know, you've, you're finding yourself staring down the calendar and wondering at what point do we find some way to have a conversation with a China who is purchasing nearly all of its energy now from people that we have a, a crucial disagreement with. How do we find a way to work through our issues of, of our intolerance when it comes to what they're doing to the people, the Uyghur people? How do we find some way to work with our complete distaste for their alleged theft of intellectual property rights? The list goes on and on and on. And then how does China continue to build what it sees as its opportunity to grow, to dominate, and to manufacture hope for well over a billion people? in an environment where there's a tremendous amount of distrust amongst the other nations around the world, many of them, at least. It's difficult to do. And I talk about all of that because really today's topic is about the interdependency that has created a question about supply chain resiliency. And in 2023 is the year when we keep saying we're going to come back to normal, right? Freights are going to drop back down to earth. We're going to be able to depend on the supply chains that we built before. The West Coast port strike is going to sort itself out. We're going to be able to depend on our logistics infrastructure because it won't be overwhelmed by the incredible volumes that have been going through it. That's all well and good, and that's fine. And I can appreciate all the things that that says and all the things that that means. But it doesn't answer the fact that my landlady and Walter fundamentally don't get along. It doesn't answer the fact that the two parties that we're talking about have been in a fight almost since the nation of China was conceived about whether or not we believe philosophically what the other was doing correctly. And here we are today saying, well, the supply chains are gonna be fine again because as Americans and as Europeans in particular, we could depend again on our infrastructure that has been built to generally rely on inexpensive labor coming in from China. And China is beginning to say, well, things will probably be fine again because we can depend on the markets of Asia, pardon me, the markets of, of, uh, of the United States and the markets of Europe to consume our goods pretty much without question. And supply chain resiliency, it's this topic that was always talked about, but rarely acted on. And through the course of the pandemic, people found themselves wanting 
some kind of footing, wanting some kind of stability. Everything that we had come to depend on was shaken to the core. We questioned everything from if this particular mode of transportation was necessarily the correct one as to if a shift towards more technology was correct, if we should depending more on people, should we buy things from this country or that country? Are these free trade agreements actually getting us and compelling us to do the things that we want globally? But honestly, because so many of us work for public companies, once the immediate terror of what's going on this quarter has passed and we submit our numbers for this quarter, we tend to forget. We don't think upon lines of quarter after quarter, year after year, decade after decade of incremental growth towards that end goal. What we think of is how do I make sure that my numbers are financially where they need to be so that I can live up to the expectations of the people that I work with? And four, and that I can deliver what I need to deliver so that I can keep this business moving forward. Because really, can anyone can anyone say, and I mean this really say, that they understood prior to COVID and what happened with that tragedy, what it meant to be so dependent on a supply chain that was tied into China? So that's you know question number one. Did you did you really understand what it meant to be so dependent on China? And then at the same time, question B, did you do anything about it? We're, for many companies, we're already a year past the boiling point of when things reach their apex of the supply chain crisis. And we are back to doing what it is that we do. In my case, I'm back to working for a logistics provider, which means we are seeking out opportunities to move cargo, enter it through customs and deliver it to its final destination. And we're doing it all over the world. We're trying to be as absolutely efficient and proficient as possible at a price that makes it tempting for people to use it. And I'm in competition with every other freight forwarder around the world. What I do now is not dependent on my ability entirely to get capacity. It's dependent on my ability to convince the people I'm selling to that my solution is superior to someone else's. A year and a half ago, that didn't matter. The superiority of the solution was not as important as the ability to at least get space. Have companies changed? Have they innovated past what went wrong? I don't know that it has. And, and are we looking at that fundamental problem? that with all of this interdependency that's happening with one another, all it takes is a brief shutdown followed by a week or two, let's say, of people questioning whether or not they can depend on China as a source of their supply before global markets begin to shatter and we begin to speculate on the health and the future viability of global markets. We all just got through what for many of us ought to be the most challenging years of our career. And I, I hope we don't have to look back on it and say, wow, you know, this feels like 2019 all over again. We better batten down the hatches. But that may have been the worst of it. But for young people who are just entering this business, the last four years are all they've ever known. This is supply chain.
And I think what we should probably consider as we talk about today's episode is what if what we've just watched for the last couple of years, well, that's what a supply chain is now. We'll be right back after this message. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. So this, of course, leads us to the strangest part of today's episode, which is the topsy-turvy state of the world today. U.S. consumers are always strange. And if, if, if I knew how to get my arms around precisely what it is they're doing and why I wouldn't be a, a VP with a freight forwarder, I would be, you know, I'd be working for a big bank somewhere doing big Wall Street banker stuff, living a life that most people can only dream of and driving my Ferrari around town. So, um, but where we are now, the unemployment bubble hasn't burst. There's still a lot of places looking for help night and day, going to any restaurant, honestly, and try to get sat down when half the tables are open these days. Um, but where we are seeing the unemployment, it's at the higher end of the scale where you are noticing all the high-tech layoffs. You're not seeing it, however, in manufacturing. You're not seeing it yet in service. So the, the, the edges are fraying, but the center remains strong. We are, however, beginning to really hurt from inflation. It's been well over, what, a year and a half now since that, that bell was really beginning to ring, and it didn't matter who you were. You could be somebody who worked at a central bank, or you could be old Mo down at the barbershop. Everybody has something to say about the topic, and it is hurting us all. The, the big topic du jour, you know, we're recording this on the 31st of January, is discussing eggs. And there's um, some interesting numbers that come along with that particular topic. You've got the number of chickens that died, of course. But if you look at the major egg producers, they are having record years of profits and the amount of outputs isn't much different than years before. So you would think that given how production costs would be higher for them, that their profits would be lower. Not the case. So go ahead and take a deep look into that one. In other units of, uh, of basis that we take a deep, deep look at, like energy, like homeownership, is the case. But, you know, that's one um, where you could probably have a bit of cynicism. But yes, inflation is a real concern. So Congress is focused on spending right now, not on the debt. They are focused on trying to find ways to at least appear to be working on, on these issues. But really, you know, they're, they're throwing money at the war in Ukraine right now. They're, they're trying to deal with the debt ceiling. But it doesn't appear that they're working lockstep arm in arm to manage the issues of what's going on with inflation. To be very frank, if you look at what's gone on in the course of my lifetime over the half a century that I've been walking the earth, 
when it comes to inflation, when it comes to deflation, when it comes to employment, when it comes to unemployment, the prevailing wisdom on Capitol Hill, the prevailing wisdom in London, the prevailing wisdom even when it came to uh, the former Soviet Union was time will sort this out. Markets will deal with themselves. And that honestly is what we're hearing right now from D.C. This will sort itself out based on what the Fed is doing, based on how markets deal with themselves. But I got to tell you, from where I'm sitting, this is going to be a relatively long recession. So it will take a while to recover. We dumped a lot of money into this economy, money that we didn't necessarily have. So we'll see. I think that energy has a lot to do with the upcoming elections and with the upcoming change to the economy. And we are transportation people, regardless of if you're just, quote unquote, just a trade compliance professional. We are dealing with the back end and the front end of a transportation uh, transportation move, which means that we have to care about energy. And there is a shale revolution coming again. If you can remember what was going on, say, 2008, 2009, we're going to be seeing that all over again, which is the opening up of the spigot for the fracking. Um, and I think that if you think that in the next presidential election, this won't be a serious, serious concern for the left and something that is pushed very hard on the right when um, the gas prices of the past, say, year will be pushed in the face of everyone in every single presidential debate, whether it's the primary or beyond that, you are absolutely crazy. We're at the point now where the United States and Iran, they're rethinking an overall deal in order to assure that we can help Iran, quote unquote, to determine where they're going to be selling their energy to put even more pressure on uh, the folks in Russia. So it's just, it, it's, it makes sense, right? You're going to see pressure on our foreign, even adversaries and foreign, um, you know, foreign allies to try to squeeze tighter on Russia to get them to come to the table. You're going to see us working with people um, people mostly being being China, to think twice about who they're buying energy from. You're going to see us reconsidering how we can do everything we can to become a net exporter again of energy in a way that does not um, hamper our ability to have cheap and efficient energy for Americans. And, you know, the question will be, can it be done in enough time so that President Biden and the Democrats in the United States will be able to use that to their advantage when they run again. This is a, it's a big question, you know. Um, there's the energy side of trade. There's, of course, this idea that President Biden could take this window of opportunity over the course of the next few months to try to push trade policy. Because if there's, if there's one thing I think that both sides of the aisle right now on Capitol Hill agree, it's that we could do more for trade and it would look good. So it wouldn't cause a lot of arguing left and right. You could certainly come to consensus for it. President Biden would sign that legislation. Um, what could be done for Vietnam? What could be done for Cambodia? What could be done to codify and make stronger GSP? What could be done for Latin America? There's a lot to be said there. So I think you'll see more pushing of that. And what could be done for our allies in Great Britain? Um, with... The UK currency making a bounce back since they they've toned down this argument of of just dumping taxes everywhere and, and stabilizing that economy to something a little more akin to what they had before. 
um, you're seeing things really begin to settle down there. But the European Union and the euro is still a big concern and a question. Their supply chain issues, still a question. What they'll be importing, still a question. And people still very much worried about their access to energy, their hyper-dependency on the United States, their hyper-dependency on um, what remains of their dependency on Russia and how that will all work out. You've still got Indian oil being imported uh, from Russia into energy and then it being transferred and, and transmitted into non-crude exports of finished material that's been refined and being shipped all around the world, backed by the banks of Europe, backed by insurance companies in Europe on these vessels that are widely held from owners everywhere from Greece, Turkey, um, Western Europe, and yes, Russia as well. But those insurance companies are beginning to question now whether or not that's a great idea. So we're beginning to see now more and more questions coming out of the European Union about whether or not marine insurance should be applied to these shipments. Um, and that really lines up that whole line of thought, right? So European ocean carriers are who are focused on containerization, making lots of money there. There were a lot of leasing companies, though, that were still involved in the tanker trade that were allowing this Russian oil, allowing this grain to be moved, who now are beginning to wonder, should they still be involved in this as sanctions get tighter and tighter, as it's getting more and more dangerous to move this stuff, as crews are harder and harder to find, and as the sanctions are getting tighter and tighter around them. It's going to be harder to find marine insurance to cover these vessel movements. So grain exports aren't really impacted by these sanctions, but most of the energy is, depending on where it's going. I think you're going to find it very, very difficult for Russian oil to be moving around the world on insured vessels, regardless of where it's going, regardless of the flag that it's moving on. And more and more European companies who are concerned about the liability of being engaged in them, um, putting it on their paper and doing it boldly. So it's going to start going to those second and third tier developing nations who will start getting engaged in them. And with that comes the possibility of problems. You also look at how it used to be British Petroleum who was engaged out there in Siberia. And while they were engaged out there in Siberia, they were using higher technology to do the exploration. Well, that higher technology, of course, begins to break down. British Petroleum isn't engaged anymore out there. Russia is unable to get parts, they're unable to get support. So that exploration, unfortunately, is it's not happening. And they're having a harder and harder time of keeping up production. Russia is, is going to find themselves unable to keep up the flows necessary to keep China, to keep India um, up to date and flowing heavily with all of the energy that they want. So those rigs are going to continue to break down. And unless they're able to get the technology, to get the support from Europe, from the Americas, from Canada, from the U.S., they're going to find themselves unable to continue to export the necessary petroleum to keep the war machine moving. So Europe very much has um, a lot to say with both the movement of this energy. It has a lot to say with with how Russia was able to do the exploration, to do the drilling. And now they're going to have a lot to say with whether or not that will continue because of the American sanctions that were put in place. 
So there is a, a massive window that's opening now that has to do with these sanctions. Um, probably about five, six months ago, there's a lot of head scratching about whether or not these sanctions were worth it working, whether or not they were worth it. And I think that's the problem with the 24 hour news cycle. That's the problem with the modern internet age is that we're so used to things happening and the impact being seen so quickly. Diplomacy takes time. So, um, and that time apparently is beginning to work, work off. So if, if we look a little bit closer to home now, the USMCA, uh, you know, NAFTA 2.0 is certainly bearing fruit right now for, for the three countries engaged in it. We're seeing a lot of production moving to Mexico. I have, I'm still constantly getting calls about what can be pushed down there. Um, what's unfortunate, though, is the high-profile violence that's going on between the Mexican government and the drug cartels. It's it's almost comical how often you can go on Twitter, go on Reddit, go on Instagram, and see the violent action that's happening down there. While at the same time, you can open up a lot of business press and see the number of high-end businesses who are moving production, moving manufacturing, moving processing south of the border or making plans to do so rather than going into Asia. And I mean that broadly. I don't mean just China. I mean Cambodia. I mean Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. They're moving into Mexico in order to take advantage of not only the great supply chain, but also the rising market that's in Mexico. And beyond that, south of that, into South and Central America. So the growing trade that's happening in that is happening at an incredible pace. And Canada is also able to take advantage of that. I think people have been sleeping on the growth that's happening there, the technology growth that's happening there, and the work that they're trying to do to bring in as many migrants as possible to create a much larger, broader, and more meaningful um, community there of, of people to act as a consumption market. So they're doing what they can. And, and it's, it's important to remember that there was a time when Canada was using petroleum technology to use those oil sands and to frack and do whatever they could to get us enough energy to really export their way into the hearts of the United States and Europe. And I think that's clearly going to happen again. But in order to do that, they, they may have to make some hard decisions about how they move that energy in a very pro-green, very... Um, very, very environmentally sensitive environment for Canada, they may find themselves having to make some um, some trade-offs in order to get where it needs to be. But right now you're looking at this, you know, self-sustaining agriculture, energy and relatively, you know, relative safety of Canada um, and America. It, it's putting them in the ability to sort of have a wait and see attitude with Russia, a wait and see attitude with Europe a wait and see attitude with what's going on with a lot of the, the madness in the world right now. We are oceans away and we are economies away of the worst of what's happening, even with COVID and the COVID lockdowns. So it's an enviable place to be right now for the USMCA countries. And I think that that's going to have a big part to do with us finding ourselves probably farther into a recovery than most of the rest of the world in what I still believe will be a long recovery. So that leads us, of course, to what we kicked the show off with, and that's that's U.S. and China and what it all means for the U.S. and China. You know, China never had any intention 
ever of following through with the U.S. Chinese free uh, this U.S. Chinese Phase One agreement that we went into with Mr. Trump. It'd be crazy to think that they really ever did, um, and we really had no intention of ever enforcing it. I mean, how could we? We we put all these great ideas, all this wonderful thought into how we were going to do it. But honestly, there was never really any intention that we were ever going to do it. But Congress can come up with some way now to to really put some pressure behind Mr. Biden to at least get the water boiling for either his next term or for whomever takes his place, whether it's another Democrat or whether it's a Republican, to, to make everyone realize that, that China is in a position where they've got to do something. And the United States is in a position where they actually have some degree of leverage and we do require, because of all those supply chains I talked about and people's ignorance to the idea that they do have to make some changes for the resiliency of their supply chains, that we are possibly forever over-reliant on those Asian supply chains, that this could be the time to help strengthen them, but maybe on terms that are not so lopsided to our partners in China. That could mean asking them to not be so reliant on energy from a country that we're trying to starve financially in, in Russia. It could mean maybe finding ways to open themselves up a bit more without us dictating terms that they never have any intention of ever following through with. You can find a win here between these two countries, a win that allows us to put some pressure on Russia without making it a situation that China simply can't win with Russia, where they can get enough energy, maybe as a split between ourselves and between Russia, maybe between Iran, Russia, and ourselves, and Canada. Maybe we can find a way where we can open up new markets to China with a degree of trust. And that's, that's hard. That's really hard for us to even consider. Maybe there's some way, crazy as it sounds, that we're able to enter into collaboration when it comes to technology with China. Because this is gonna sound nuts again, the future is not a zero sum game. Civilization is not a zero sum game. There could be hope for the future if we can find a way to work with one another. Right, I'll be back with the uh, end of the podcast and my final thoughts after this message from our sponsors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Traffic Tech. Your business is what moves us, what moves you. Traffic Tech offers a variety of global logistics services, including trucking, intermodal shipping, customs brokerage, and supply chain consulting. To learn more, visit our website at trafficTech.com. I always talk about how me being a nerd as a child should be a shock to everyone, but I, I don't know why, but I was a massive nerd. Again, not a shock to anyone. I played a lot of strategy games. I, I was absolutely lost to Dungeons and Dragons as a tween, and I hate to admit as a teenager, and at times as a 20-year-old. Um, I loved playing chess. I still do, although I will admit, not very good. Um, I have been smoked 
by young people and old people alike, but it's always depressing when someone's um, fifth grader absolutely trashes you on the board. But I do love to play. So for those of you that listen, if you ever want to get a long distance game going with me, I probably enjoy it. Um, but I, I did love war games. I loved Axis and Allies. My good friend Adele, he actually had a computer game that he developed for that. And uh, I love playing Risk. I loved it when I was a kid. It, you know, the child board game where you were you had a different colored army and you started on a continent with a certain equal number of armies as everyone else. And you went about the board trying to take over the earth. Um, it was one of those games that could be as easy or as difficult as the other people that you played with. When I first started playing, I was probably, I don't know, 10 or 11, I think. And I kept playing all the way through high school. And I used to love to play with my dad because I would beat the tar out of him. And I also like playing with some of my um, high school friends. And I love playing with junior high school friends. I liked playing with a lot of people. I liked playing Risk with um, as many people as we could we could play with. And I love playing online even now. I'll play um, quick games even now. And as I grew older, this created a fascination of playing strategy games online with people, um, war strategy games online with people, much more complicated and complex war strategy games. But Risk is a child's board game. And it's actually very easy to win. And there are a number of consulting firms and there are a number of um, IT and software companies that actually have their their um, candidates play risk with them over drinks to see the sorts of strategies that they use and how they play. It tells a lot about people's personalities. You can tell if they're aggressive, as an example. You can tell if they're friendly. You can tell if they're good winners, if they're sore losers. You can tell a lot about them. But really... Winning risk isn't all that much different than losing um, than losing risk. <laughs> it, it's, it makes it makes one one decision after another pretty simple. You you just have to focus. You you make the decision to focus your one continent. Uh, I played with one friend of mine when I was a kid who would just he would try to win in five or six different places when he would play. So he would, if you've seen the board, right, you have your one color on one continent and um, you would set your pieces about the board. And instead of concentrating on winning one continent and then getting more, more armies, which would allow you to create world domination, he would just try to fight all over the place. So rather than concentrating his power and then moving on from there, he would just try to cause as many small squabbles as possible. And ultimately, you know, you divide his armies and destroy him. Um, and it's a lot, believe it or not, like we find ourselves now in this conversation we had earlier with regards to economies and regards to supply chains. So, you know, when you got to fuel an economy and compete on a world scale and you got to trust a tyrant like Europe just did with Putin when he offered him a pipeline full of LNG, you're going to lose, right? You've got all your eggs in one basket and you're dealing with someone who overpowers you and you have no leverage, you're going to lose. That's too much risk, right? You know, the name of the board game is based on that, right? You've risked too much. Um, risk is it, it's, it's when there's, there's, there's no money to be made at every turn by people who are, are less concerned with risk, right? So 
when there's when there's money to be made at every turn by people who are, are less concerned with risk. So what I mean by that is there's money to be made in a down economy because I've got the money and I'm not so concerned with risk. I've got the money, I can build something now. But when, when people are desperate, they're more likely to take risks. It's like someone who's got to make the rent so they go to the casino and they're doing everything they can to make easy money. It's not going to work. It's like the case of a Russian ship owner who's willing to go into shallow ports right now with a crew that's probably tired or a crew that's not ready to do what they need them to do and an underinsured vessel, right? When you need to run again, you know, and you make packs with the opposition, like the president's party is likely to do right now, that you're probably going to regret. When you need to mobilize an army, you work with anyone who will have you, like the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the U.S., but with Israel, right? So um, when you've seen your supply chain impacted, you become risk averse. And you consider onshoring, like with the USMCA. But are you? Are you taking the necessary steps to make change? Are you focusing on the areas of your supply chain that you just can't live without? Are you paying attention to the things that make you better? Are you paying attention to the things that really matter? Or are you just focused on starting all these little squabbles all over the place? Or are you putting yourself in a position where something very easily could leverage you and destroy everything? Are you doing what needs to be done as a business? Are you doing what needs to be done as a supply chain to put yourself in a position of strength so you can win? Love isn't very different than war. If you want to be happy in a relationship, whether it's friendships, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a loved one to someone that you're romantically involved in, all it really takes is just focusing everything you have on another person. And saying, I'm going to absolutely positively focus everything on them and nobody else. And I'm, I'm not going to bother with, with string. I'm just, I'm just going to commit myself. When you commit yourself and you do it, things work out. And, and I've spoken throughout this entire podcast about what it meant to overcommit to China. It's committing to a strategy. And that, that strategy is a sustainable and resilient supply chain. And making sure that every single day, you don't do the easy thing, you do the right thing. And focus to it. Do you love your supply chain enough? Do you love your business enough to actually take the steps to follow through? Or are you going to go back to the easy thing? Are you going to go back to the simple supply chain because it's there, because what's going to happen this quarter and the financial outcomes this quarter are just more important than doing what's right? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not you. I'm not your company. I'm just the guy that a lot of you come to for advice. And I'm telling you right now, what just happened will happen again. And we're going to find ourselves in the same positions, wishing that we did something smarter. Anyway, I hope it doesn't happen to you. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in another week for a great episode of Trade Geek. Take care. Mm -hmm.